got icy in Austin late last night. Several months ago, I talked to you on the phone earlier yeah. today. Yeah. How you doing? Good. I'm doing all right. Good. So. Good. How are y'all doing? We're doing fine. You're getting ready to get started here. So getting ready. Yep. Yeah. Uh huh. Good evening. Obviously, a number of our people are still down with seasonal illness and some people out of town, but we're certainly glad you're here. You came out in very cold weather, and you're ready to study the Bible, and that's what we do. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 7 through 18 this evening. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 7 through 18. Ecclesiastes is about life here on earth that is characterized by good and bad. But to keep life in the most valuable place and for the best possible outcome, when you leave here, Solomon says to us at the end of this book, fear God and keep his commandments. Because of Jesus Christ, we can live this way, being forgiven of our sins and brought into good standing with God. 
Ecclesiastes helps us to be realistic about life here under the sun, but hopefully about how it will all end with stunning eternal beauty for God's people described for us in the New Testament. But while we're here, Solomon says, fear God and keep his commandments. Chapter 7, continuing at verse 7 in just a moment after prayer. Heavenly Father, to thee we express our love and praise, to thee our gratitude for Jesus, for thy word, and for good opportunities like this to apply the perfect discipline of thy word to our lives here under the sun. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. That's the first section I want us to concentrate on. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Let's take up just that section to begin our study tonight. And I want to start with verse 7 just by itself because in this section we have as we described the other day proverbs that are embedded into Solomon's journal Ecclesiastes so we're going to take up verse 7 by itself where it says surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart I want to connect this with what we studied Sunday in the section previous to this, Solomon was discussing the value of visiting the house of mourning. A funeral is a sad occasion because of grief and loss, but a funeral can be valuable for us as we reflect on the brevity of life and the reality of death, and we make all that personal. So I said to us on Sunday, on the occasion of a death, there is a soberness and reality that we can take to heart personally. It is a benefit, by the way, generally not found from a party, but is found in a funeral. Now, here in verse 7, Solomon follows up, I believe. And he wants us to understand, I think, that not all bad events bring some good benefit. A funeral, though there is a loss, can bring into our minds some good direction of thought about where we're headed, what we need to do. Fear God and keep his commandments. That can come to mind and we can be provoked about all that at a funeral. This cannot, however, be claimed about all the events that occur here under the sun. 
Because, for example, Solomon says there is oppression that will drive you mad and there is bribery that has no good benefit embedded in it at all. And what Solomon is doing, I think, in verse 7 of Ecclesiastes 7, he's giving us a reality check. Some sad events where there's a loss, like a funeral, can cause very good reflection. But you can't say that about all the events under the sun across the board. And he gives two examples, oppression and bribery. Those are things that can just drive us mad. So in proverbial format, Solomon offers this clarification after saying that attending a funeral can have a good benefit. Now, let's take up 8 through 10. And sometimes when Proverbs are collected together, you can read them and discover a theme. That's the case in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. Sometimes you can read a paragraph and you can discern a theme. And there is a theme in verses 8 through 10. Listen for it, please. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Well, when I read this several times last week, I saw a theme, and I think that theme could be stated with this word, patience. Our problem is pervasive in our time, and I speak generally here. We want what we want immediately. We are a people oriented toward getting things now. We are not so much oriented toward waiting. Some examples. If our email doesn't go out instantly, if there is a five-second delay, we can get irritated. Microwave ovens and fast food have conditioned us to demand something to eat and have it with no waiting time. We don't like to stand in line or wait in traffic. We find these things frustrating. We are a people, I'm speaking generally, who want what we want with some immediacy about it. We want it now. Solomon is using Hebrew proverbial literary style to get us to think about this very simple virtue of patience that we need while we're here under the sun. Many good things come to us after waiting. So, the takeaway just from this section would be very simple. Don't be in such a hurry. Slow down. There is no rush. Wait for the end of a thing. The patient spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And by the way, observe a connection there. Observe that pride is connected with impatience in this proverb. So we're getting the message to be patient in spirit while we are here under the sun. And fearing God and keeping his commandments will, of course, instill patience in us and defeat 
pride. It is far better to be patient than to be proud in spirit. Then he says in verse 9, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Here's something else that we get in a hurry about. Anger. We arrive at the point of anger sometimes very quickly and then we let it stay inside. Every one of us, I believe, experience moments of anger. This verse is not about moments of legitimate anger that you handle with good discipline, that it, anger that is contained and managed well. This is about anger that you arrive at quickly and it stays there. Look at that word, lodges. Or if you have a translation, it may say, a different translation than this, it may say, resides in the heart of the angry person or abides there. That's about your abode. So to arrive at anger very quickly and then to just stay there and let that anger build up inside you. That's where long-term issues come that can defeat us in our efforts to fear God and keep His commandments while we're here under the sun. Long-term issues begin sometimes when we get angry quickly and we stay angry. And instead of responding righteously, instead of control and discipline, we just hold it within. And it lodges there. And what happens over years and years of this undisciplined arrival at anger and this lodging of anger in your heart is anger crowds out your potential to have better attitudes. Anger just lodges there and you put it there and give it a place then you give another place in your heart for more anger and you wind up a bitter angry person where you've got all these issues that you never have really handled. So Solomon says, while we're here under the sun, we need to fear God and keep His commandments. He's taking us to that conclusion. But part of that here is, be not quick in your spirit to become angry. Anger lodges in the bosom of fools. We need to learn from the New Testament to have those attitudes and disciplines that enable us to respond righteously when we get upset. Now, we'll all get upset because under the sun, there are things like, remember from a few minutes ago, oppression and bribery. That's going to upset you. Solomon is now saying, don't let that anger arrive in your heart quickly and lodge there because it'll become very, very crowded. Solomon calls that foolish. From verses 8 and 9... I think what we have here, if I can summarize 8 and 9, teaching that calls upon us to be a restrained people, to be patient, to not hold on to anger, to have those attitudes that will fill our hearts in such a way that we do not arrive quickly at anger, 
And we don't let it lodge there. Anything I'm thinking, saying, or doing in my life now that goes against this, I need to use the Word of God to root it out, deal with it, and get it out of my heart and my life. We have an expression in Arkansas, maybe we got it from people in Texas, I don't know, flying off the handle. We used to call it that. Letting anger consume you and reside in you and eat at you and make no room for good attitudes and good thoughts. It can destroy you, can take you away from God. So under the sun we experience things like oppression and bribery and it can drive us mad. Solomon says in verse 7, now he calls upon us to be a restrained people who are patient and we have defeated pride by our obedience to the gospel and we do not let anger reside within us. Questions or comments before we continue? Very good instruction written by Solomon in good proverbial simple format. Verse 10 needs our attention. Say not why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Good translation of that verse is in the NIV. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Now, here's the way I want to approach this. We know what Solomon is not saying. Solomon is not saying ignore the past. Solomon was a writer and a student and all the Old Testament writers were to some extent historians, weren't they? They were historians. The past is a great critical learning resource for us. There's nothing here in this verse that invites us to wipe out the past or ignore the past. Uh, in fact, we bring to this building every time we come here a book that contains history given by God that leads us to present imperatives. So God wants us to know, for example, in our daily Bible reading, how everything started and then how everything in history led to the coming of Jesus Christ. That's critical history. Solomon is not saying, forget the past, ignore the past. Not anything like that. And you can certainly speak of the past with pleasure. And you can have fond memories that cheer your heart. So what's the problem here? The problem here is... That impatient, proud, complaining spirit that is often accompanied by some exaggeration. It might sound something like this. I'm going to give you some phrases that may capture what Solomon speaks against in this verse. We didn't do it that way in the old days. We didn't do that when I was a kid. Or have you ever heard somebody say, almost in these words, if we could just turn the clock back and the calendar back, everything would be so much better. 
Young people just don't have it figured out like we did back in the day. Have you thought or heard those kind of things? I have a question for you. What do we expect young people to do? May I remind us there is no time machine. So all of this complaining spirit that it's not today the way it used to be, certainly we can be informed about that and inform others, but when we, when we harp against young people because they don't live in the 1950s, they cannot enter into a time machine and go back. It may not be helpful or valuable. What can happen to us is, <clears throat> maybe especially in our senior years, there is a bitterness that can set in. And we can almost leave the impression with young people that there is no hope because you're not in the 1950s, not in the 60s. Well, maybe not the 60s. We can almost leave the impression that there's no hope for them because we lived in such a better day. Now, we can relate history to the young people. And we can, we can sometimes show them how principles that were implemented in a more vigorous way in years gone past had value. We can do that. But the complaining can lead young people to have no hope. There is no time machine they can get into. Wise people live in the present. We accept the challenges of the present. We know that maybe there was a time we lived in when it was better. But we understand that we cannot go back. We cannot drag our young people back to 1950. We cannot change everything to suit the history that we preferred. The 1950s are over. Would you consider, I found this quote the other day, posted it on social media, and it got quite a lot of attention. I think this says it well. The Bible does not commonly assess the present in terms of the past, but much more typically does so in terms of the future with all its potential for change. Those who insist on harking back to the past often impose burdens on those who live in the present from which they cannot escape. No time machine. But to set the present in the context of the future is to set a path before someone else that allows the past to be left behind and a new way of being to be embraced. Now, what do we tell people when we preach the gospel? What do we tell people when we study the New Testament with them? We inform them about the past as God has revealed it divine history it might be said but then we talk to them about what they need to do when now and so in the new testament there's the new birth there's walking in newness of life there's getting ready for the second coming you don't have to live in the 1950s to get ready for the second coming you can get ready for it now the old man dies the new man emerges so I think what Solomon is doing here is he's wanting us to ponder the fact that our harking back to history all the time can come across as a complaint and it can come across as hopeless for young people who simply can't go back to that day. And by the way, 
was it all great in the 1950s? Was it absolutely good in the 1940s? We know the 60s were not very good. So sometimes we tend to accompany these statements with some exaggeration. And the young people can go back and they can read about World War II. They can read about things that happened in the 40s and 50s and 60s and they can think, well, Grandma and Grandpa just sort of exaggerated that. So, good thought here. There's a translation of the Bible called the message that is, I want to emphasize a paraphrase, and it says, don't always be asking where the good old days. Wise folks don't ask questions like that. Your comments. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, good point. She makes the point, if you couldn't hear in the back, that in every generation there's been this spirit of the good old days. And so people who lived in the 50s, I'm sure there were people in the 50s who said, well, the 20s were the good old days. <laughs> Go read about the 20s. Or the 30s were the good old What happened in the 30s? The Depression. So in every generation this comes up. And what we need to do is communicate to people that today... They can change and fear God and keep His commandments. You don't have to go back to 1950 to go to heaven. All right, 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. There is an interchange here between two things we've talked about before I want to go back to. Wisdom and knowledge. That's the emphasis you see in these two verses. And so let's focus on that a minute. And let's take a minute to distinguish wisdom and knowledge. And the distinction I'm going to make that applies very often in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs may not be a distinction that adheres in every context. But I think it does here. Let's talk about that. There's a difference to be noted. Think of knowledge and wisdom as two sides of the same coin. Think of knowledge and wisdom as two sides of the same coin. In other words, knowledge is the discovery side of the coin. Wisdom is the implementing side. So knowledge involves the discovery of truth God has given. Wisdom involves the use of that truth. The implementing of the truth from God about how we need to live under the sun, fear him and keep his commandments. So without knowledge, wisdom devolves into zealotry. And without wisdom, knowledge is worthless. So you need the entire coin. You need knowledge that God supplies about truth, about how you ought to live. Then wisdom is when you apply that, you implement that in your life. Solomon wants us to know and apply truth from God while we're here under the sun. That's the greatest legacy. And it's worthy of protecting. It's the highest investment of your time and energy. The use of the knowledge God has given wisely in the practical conduct of your life. Wisdom is the highest kind of inheritance 
our treasure. I need to move on to 13, please. 13 is helpful. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? There is a philosophy. You talk about the 1960s. There's a philosophy that emerged in the 1960s that really had been around for a long time, but it acquired a label in the 1960s, and it was actually taught on the collegiate level. Humanism. You ever heard of humanism? Humanism emerged in the 60s. I, I say emerged. It had been around a long time, but it acquired a label and more popularity. And one of the arguments of humanism was that man can understand everything. And then once man understands everything, he can fix everything. Well, how did that turn out? This is like what James said in James 4, 13 to 17, that we do not know what a day may bring forth. There are many things that man will never figure out. Of all the advancements that may come in the days ahead, combined with all the advancements of previous ages, there are some things man will never figure out. God's work the way God has set up life on earth with cause and effect and unseen providential mystery, we cannot perfectly understand. And it's also true, we can't fix everything. We can't fix everything. Much frustration is eliminated when you recognize that God is God and we are not and humanism is a big fraud and we cannot fix everything. We cannot fix everything. God may use in his time both adversity and prosperity. He may permit events that we do not like and do not understand. God can, if he wills, turn something in a direction that suits his purpose. And we cannot know all the details of providence. And cannot change everything to suit our desires. Matthew Henry made a good statement in his commentary. He said, be not conceited of thine own abilities. Matthew Henry wrote in the King James era from a literary standpoint. He said, be not conceited of thine own abilities, nor find fault with everything, or think you can fix it all. You can't. The future is not predictable. It is God who controls the times, as we learned back in chapter 3. And the times are extremely variable. Knowing this reality of what we cannot know and cannot fix, there's a certain peace with that. Fear God and keep his commandments. Knowing who God is. Knowing our limited human status, knowing who God is, we can enjoy life better under the sun. 14 to 18. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, <clears throat> and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, 
and do not make yourself too wise, why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool, why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. That's a statement I have underlined in in all my Bibles. The one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Now we're not going to have time tonight to navigate all the details of this. I may have opportunity to bring up some of this later. But let's take up verse 14 and put ourselves clearly into this idea. That there will be good days and bad days here on earth. Anybody dispute that? And that we cannot fully understand all the reasons, the causes, the mystery. If you cannot know about all of this or fix all of this, there is a peace and recognition that's recommended here in these words. Be joyful in the day of prosperity, but in the day of adversity, soberly consider. Verse 14 in the paraphrase I talked about the message On a good day, enjoy yourself. On a bad day, examine your conscience. God arranges for both kinds of days so that we won't take anything for granted. Put this reference down. I don't have time tonight to go to it. Isaiah 40, 13 and 14. The difference between God and man. Isaiah 40, 13 and 14. Every day we have was given to us by God. That doesn't mean he directly causes every bad event. That he takes any delight in our suffering or anything like that. But he provides a foundation and a stern ship through which we can navigate those storms. Fear God and keep his commandments. Verse 15 addresses a reality. That's also highlighted in the book of Job and also in Psalm 73 and by Jesus, uh, I'm not there yet, by Jesus in uh, Luke 13. A disturbing reversal that sometimes we see. That good people suffer. You ever know a good person to have cancer? Of course. Good people suffer without any obvious or discernible reason. Remember, we're an impatient people and we want to know answers and fix everything. Well, good people suffer and sometimes there's no obvious or discernible reason or cause. And then sometimes we observe along with that that bad people seem to do well. Do you ever know a person who wasn't a Christian who had good health all of his life? We have. Well, we don't like that. Solomon says, in my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. We look at some evil people, and we think God ought to end their life right now. But remember, we're not God. We can't fix everything. Good people suffering, bad people thriving, that's always going to be the case. 
even when we say it just isn't fair. Solomon is not attempting here to give us perfectly satisfying answers. He just wants us to know this is the way it is. We need to face that. And there is some sarcasm here. Be not overly wicked, or be not overly righteous, and be not overly wicked. I think what he's repeating is sarcastically what people say when you get all wrapped up in the things that are under the sun rather than putting your life under the authority of the maker of the sun. All right, takeaways. Got eight or nine minutes here for takeaways. Obviously, we're going to talk about patience when we come to this text in Ecclesiastes. And in the New Testament, patience is always connected with faith in Christ. As you believe in Him, through a life of committed obedience, you're able to wait, be calm, hope, and avoid the impulses like anger that destroy you and that you collect inside. Hebrews 6 and verse 12 always comes to mind when I deal with the subject of patience. Hebrews 6 and verse 12 so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. There's your connection. Patience comes from faith and enables us to avoid the impatient, prideful anger that we can collect inside that can destroy us. Patience is a good lesson to learn from the paragraph we've studied tonight. Number two, our passion needs to be governed by patience and wisdom. Have you ever known somebody that had zeal up here and knowledge down here? Who wrote about that in the New Testament? Paul, Romans chapter 10. Paul in Romans chapter 10 said, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In fact, the observation can be made that zeal and knowledge always need to be accompanied, always need to be connected. Because not only are there people with zeal up here and knowledge down here, there are people with a lot of knowledge academically and they've collected it well in their minds and they can recall it, but they have no zeal to live it and communicate it. So zeal and knowledge needs to be connected and is by Solomon and in the New Testament. One takeaway from what we've studied is we need to make the best of what we have. We can't fix everything. We can't go back to the 1950s or whatever era that we would love to go back to. And if we went back there, we'd find sin. Maybe not as celebrated and open as it is today, but we'd find sin. And we would find suffering if we went back to that era. We must make the best of what we have now, daily. Uh, I've got a sermon somewhere about this. Wasn't able to find it, but I remember the points. 
assume, determine, and know. Assume that there will be good days and bad. If you're waiting around for it to be all good, not happening under the sun. Assume there will be good days and bad. Determine that by faith in Christ, you're able to navigate both good and bad. And then know that God has something perfect planned for his people. So there's a formula that we can take out of the building into life. Assume there will be good and bad. Determine that by faith in Christ you can navigate both and know that God has something perfect planned for his people. Well, I've got two minutes, so I am going to go back to that Isaiah text in chapter 40, 13 and 14. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? At its extreme, secular humanism and New Age philosophy has it that we become divine, that we eventually become God. The Bible denies that on virtually every single page. So that's Ecclesiastes chapter 7 down through about verse 18. And so we will take up 19 through 29 on the Lord's Day when we come back for our Bible class, Lord willing. And here's what we're going to discover. If somebody says, well, why do all these bad things happen? Where did all this come from? All the oppression and bribery and the suffering and bad things. See, this alone I found that God made man upright. But they have sought out many schemes. The blame goes on the human race, on people who sin, not on God. God made man upright. More about that when you come back on Sunday. Thank you very much for your good attention to our study.